Hello, everyone, uh, and welcome to the second episode of Polity Research's podcast, The Polling Station. My name is Ernie Pikopoulos, CEO of Polity, and I'll once again be your host today. Uh, for those of you new to the podcast, I want to quickly lay out what we hope this whole process will be. Our goal is to be substantive and entertaining at the same time uh, on a range of issues dealing with polling, politics, and public policy in general. So to that end, to create a little more relaxed mood, we asked our guests to bring their favorite coffee to the podcast and tell us what they love about that coffee. And once again, as I did in the first uh, podcast, I'm bringing Pete's Major Dickinson's Blend Decaf here, and I'll show it to you here with the official polity mug. Um, black, no sugar. It's decaf coffee that counterintuitively actually has the full taste of decaf, uh, caffeinated, excuse me. Um, so I'm, uh, as you can tell, as most people who know me will agree, I'm kind of in a rut. Uh, and I'm unlikely to emerge from it, but I don't care when I find something I like, I stick with it. So that's the end of the story. All right, let's get right to our guest. Uh, please welcome uh, Philip Davis, who is currently co-chair of the London-based American Politics Group and is a longtime expert on US politics. I can attest to that personally. Phil was formerly director of the Eccles Center for American Studies at the British Library and is Professor Emeritus of American Studies at De Montfort University in Leicester, England. And as I did in my first podcast, I have to issue a full disclosure statement. Phil and I have known each other for decades now. I don't even know how many decades, Phil. We'll have to figure that out. I won't guess. Yeah, no. And, we, and the reason is initially because we both share an unhealthy passion about US elections, particularly paraphernalia surrounding US elections. We both belonged to a group I think Phil called the American Political Items Collectors Society or yeah. something like that, yeah. which is how we initially met. So for those of you who don't know about it, essentially it's a, an organization for geeks who are into bumper stickers and buttons and things like that from political campaigns. So it was initially a geekdom based friendship, uh, which has emerged and evolved, I think, Phil, into a much more substantive one now. Um, but having said that, please welcome Phil and um, Tell us what kind of coffee you're drinking today. What'd you bring to the podcast? Oh, yep, yeah, I've brought a, a coffee I really enjoy, um, which, about which I know very little in terms of its, uh, uh, its bean constitution. Uh, but it's called Lucy's Blend. And I, the reason I like it is because um, five years ago, a uh, group set up a coffee store in a market in London and dedicated all the profits to the homeless. Oh. Um, and it is now a national brand. Lucy is the name of the first woman who was taken and managed to get a house and a job uh, through the work of, the, of this group. Uh, so, and it also tastes good. Um, <laughs> it's supposed to have uh, 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 um, intimations of chocolate in it, which I'm not sure that I have the palate to detect, but it may actually uh, be the reason why I like it so much. And the mug is from one of my favorite um, uh, locations, which is Littleton, New Hampshire, uh, Miller's Cafe, which has a wonderful balcony uh, over the river there. It's just gorgeous. Oh, wonderful. Sounds, sounds like a great coffee. Sounds like it's a good cause and has the extra benefit of being tasty. It's good, yeah. yeah. 
when you put up that New Hampshire mug, it reminded me that the last time we saw each other in person pre-pandemic was yeah. in New Hampshire, yeah. um, in Durham, New Hampshire. Uh, we were uh, attending a, uh, a Klobuchar fund uh, Amy Klobuchar, event. Yeah. yeah, Amy Klobuchar. Yeah. And, yeah. and ironically, we went to have coffee afterward. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the Klobuchar thing was so full that she came out to meet us. That's right. That's right. The lobby into the hallway. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Boy, it seemed, doesn't it seem like 10 years ago instead of a little over a year ago? It's uh, an extraordinarily different world. Yeah. Okay. okay, let's get let's get right to our first topic for, for the podcast. Um, Phil, I, I'm really interested in how our 2020 presidential election here was perceived overseas, particularly in the UK, but also throughout Europe for, you know, to any degree that you, you can share that as well. And I guess the first question for you is, how did the UK press cover our election, especially, you know, the drawn out process of contesting the vote by former President Trump and the subsequent riot that happened at the US Capitol on January 6th? And I'm curious how it all was portrayed in the UK? Well, in terms of um, coverage of the election in general, you know, before the, the real crisis happened, before the post-election uh, kerfuffle, yeah. um, the, uh, the British press is, is, is quite good at uh, the detail of the American election. Um, and so every four years, um, particularly the, the um, uh, if you like, the more intellectual press, and we still do have something like a dozen national newspapers here. So there still is choice, even though readership here has gone down just as it has in the United States. Um, uh, the, 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 the better of those really do give a good guide to everybody basically who wants to can get a, a very good um, uh, year long seminar on how primaries work, how caucuses work, um, and um, uh, how the electoral college works, which of course became uh, critical. Well, it's been critical in several recent elections. Right. Um, uh, and and the BBC also uh, is 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 pretty is is very good at that nuts and bolts stuff, um, as as well as pretty good at the the analysis. Uh, obviously, uh, analysis um, uh, is it affected by political persuasion, and so there are critics on it. But fundamentally, you can get quite good. Uh, in terms of the public reaction, <laughs> that's rather the same every four years as well. <laughs> People say, what on earth is going on here? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Why does it take this long? Why does it cost that much? <laughs> Why are they saying those things? Um, uh, and um, so, so there is. Um, but but um, part of that is comes out of genuine interest. Um, uh, and part of it uh, comes out of you know the 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 the, the rather supercilious uh, oh uh, our, our our American cousins are so entertaining um, uh, kind of response that that, that people have um, uh, just as a lot of Americans uh, enjoy enjoy they know it's not true but enjoy thinking that uh, Britain is full of Downton Abbey, then uh, uh, Britons uh, have similar kind of misconceptions uh, uh, about, uh, about America and they enjoy them. And, and at the same time, know that they're wrong um, uh, and, and, and have, a, have a reality level too. Um, when, when the election was done, 
they were people were a little bit uh, surprised that the results weren't uh, known in fairly quickly, fairly quickly, because one, we uh, are used to American elections being known very quickly, uh, and two, British elections are generally known very quickly, even though we hand count and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. um, in Britain, the um, uh, situation is that uh, basically the removal vans park outside Downing Street, the Prime Minister's former house, and uh, potentially they'll move out at four o'clock in the morning when he's lost. Hmm. Um, and the next Prime Minister moves in. Uh, sometimes it takes a few days, but uh, it, 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 it does happen relatively quickly. So the idea that you're elected in November, that you don't have a numerical result for a few days, people were fairly, fairly calm about that. Big country, lots of things count. Um, but then, that even after you know the result, and of course, apart from uh, dedicatedly um, uh, obstructionist Republicans, everybody else did know the result. Um, the, um, then, uh, you know, why wait until January the 20th? Um, uh, and, and that, the idea that you then have a potentially bomb-throwing incumbent uh, yeah. who, who can uh, mess things up. Uh, becomes particularly apparent when you really have got a bomb-throwing uh, incumbent, uh, uh, whereas, you know, in, on previous occasions, obviously, uh, presidents had, for the most part, um, uh, uh, gently uh, passed the baton. And that wasn't going to happen this time. Uh, so that, yeah, people, people didn't quite understand. We haven't got a written constitution. We haven't got dates like that uh, uh, written down. We're rather more flexible. Um, we're rather more laid back, I think. <laughs> yeah, and, and actually, it's, it's funny because uh, originally the inauguration date was March 4th. It was even yes. further down the line. Um, <clears throat> and I guess part of it was back in those days, it took time for people to go from yes. New York to, you know, wherever. Yes. Um, and, uh, but obviously these days it's not an issue, but uh, yeah, it is interesting. What about the, the riot itself, the, uh, the insurrection at, at the Capitol? How did that uh, it, it, it was one of those, um, I think here as elsewhere, just one of those gripping moments when, uh, you know, the news went round, people gradually put their TVs on and sat there glued to it, um, in a sense, not quite comprehending mm -hmm. or believing what was going on. Um, and um, uh, it, th th there wasn't a lot of it public reaction. Um, there, there, there are things going on here too, you know, the, the, uh, the official end of our membership of the EU had been just a week before. Um, yeah, yeah. And um, uh, basically, um, <laughs> the borders had seized up as a result, um, uh, and uh, uh, products weren't getting through, and businesses were going bankrupt. And so there was a crisis atmosphere here, anyway, um, that was distracting people. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, you know, there was this sense that um, uh, I suppose there was there was a sense that one, this is horrible, um, not perhaps quite as emotionally reactive as many Americans would be who have a real 
connection with that building. I have a connection with that building. Sure. First time I visited that building, 1968. Um, wow. And I've been back several times since. I've been taken back um, uh, when I was at Swarthmore. I was taken back by a, a mm. friend of mine who was a Senate page, and we have access to all kinds of people. We had lunch with Senator Hiram Fong from Hawaii. Um, I met Sam Irvin in there on a later visit. I, um, uh, uh, I felt emotional about it. Yeah, um, I, I, I had a, a similar, well, yeah, I, I had a reaction as a citizen, but also a personal one because uh, I think I told you, you know, my son was an intern uh, in a couple of different congressional offices and had that event happen while he was there, I would have been, you know, terrified. Um, not that I wasn't anyway, but uh, it was just a stark kind of, uh, it just really shook me um, to see that, to see people parading around the floor of the Senate and in the speaker's chair and in the speaker's office, yeah, rifling through her pa private papers. And it was just pretty horrific. How, how did, as a kind of a follow-up though, what impact do you think the whole thing had on uh, the image of the American political system in the UK? Do you think the average UK citizen has a, a less favorable view of us now based on those events? Or? Well, I, th I think it has a less favorable view uh, of the USA based on the Trump years. Um, and so mm. this was a climax um, uh, of, of that. Um, uh, you know, I, I, I know President Biden is interested in, uh, uh, I forgot what it's called now, but a commission to support democracy, um, which fits rather well with um, the British government's wish to set up a group of 10 nations, D10, to yep. support open society. Slightly different wording. Um, open society, much more conservative. Um, uh, um, but, um, uh, and, and, and that's great. They parallel very nicely, and hopefully that's a way in which uh, transatlantic um, uh, uh, alliance can be rebuilt or, or uh, um, given uh, given uh, a kind of impetus into the future. Um, but um, there is associated with that a sense of, well, if America is going to continue to be a promoter of international democracy, perhaps it should get its democracy into good shape. <laughs> yes, the best, that's right. The, the best way is to set an example, I guess, which has always been kind of our vision of ourselves is sort of setting the example for the rest of the world. but. Yeah, we have some work to do. Um, your last comment, though, moves me to the next topic, um, which is, um, uh, you know, the policies of the new Biden administration um, regarding yeah. Europe in general and, and the UK. Um, and I'm just curious to see, you know, how you think that will impact the relationship between the two countries. It seems that Boris Johnson has been kind of even before all those events was sort of backing away from his support of Trump. It seemed to me, mm -hmm. I may be wrong about that, but it sort of yeah, seemed right. like he was distancing himself a little bit. And once the result became final, I know Johnson, you know, congratulated Biden pretty effusively and, you know, went out of his way to make that point. But as you alluded to, he's been kind of immersed in a bunch of other problems, including the Brexit issue mm -hmm. and COVID related lockdowns and so forth. But, I'm curious, what do you think will happen to US-UK relations in the next couple of years? I mean, are we going to have those talked about bilateral deals, you know? Or Who knows? Uh, <laughs> certainly, the, the, there was genuine worry uh, in 
Westminster um, uh, about uh, what result of the election would 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 uh, what the implications would be for transatlantic relations for for UK US relations uh, because uh, yeah Johnson who of course is American born you have to remember yeah that right well. that's right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, had uh, rather pinned his uh, uh, flag to um, uh, Donald Trump in, in a way that I think even uh, some of his uh, conservative uh, allies uh, felt was a little bit over the top. Um, uh, you know, he could have been perfectly friendly without mm -hmm. uh, being a, a bit uh, heavy handed. Um, and there was a concern that Biden would um, dismiss Britain um, and um, at a time when conservatives were uh, basically hoping that if Trump got re-elected, they weren't necessarily hoping that Trump would get elected, but that if Trump get elect, got elected, one of the side benefits would be a rapid UK-US trade deal. Well, there are a number of things about that. One. The fact that Trump had said that there'd be a rapid US-UK trade deal uh, meant nothing. Um, uh, so I don't know why they actually believed that, um, but they did put their faith in that. Uh, but they, they were worried that the speed of a deal would be um, diminished by a Biden election. And indeed, it's quite clear that uh, for the Biden administration, a transatlantic trade deal is not a high priority. Right. The Biden, the Biden administration yeah. has got too much on its plate uh, right. to, to, to think about something like that. Um, there was also a worry against uh, amongst some others of us, not necessarily uh, the conservatives or uh, or the most conservative, because the most conservative elements of British politics have been in favour of uh, Brexit. But not all conservatives were. Most, actually, most conservative MPs were not in favour of it. And those who had not been, and those others who uh, also had been Remainers, were worried that our exit from the EU would not only have damaged uh, the country in terms of its trade with the EU, but would also damage the country because, really, for uh, the last couple of decades, <laughs> the Britain-America-European relationship has been defined by Britain's membership of the EU yeah. and it acting as a conduit uh, 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 between these uh, two uh, transatlantic powers. Uh, and um, by uh, choosing to eject ourselves uh, from this group, then maybe we have no role at all. Um, I think that since uh, the Biden administration's come in, uh, well, certainly I, 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 I listen a lot to um, the work of the Royal Institute for International Affairs, or Chatham House, as it's otherwise known. And um, the trend of opinion there, coming out of there, seems to be that um, Britain and America are finding more in common uh, and at the same time, America is finding Europe a bit of a pain without Britain in it um, and um, uh, not finding Europe quite as easy a partner as they yeah. So there might still be a role 
yeah, I think I think you're right. I think there was <clears throat> from his initial comments anyway, there was thought that uh, the Biden administration would be focusing more on repairing multilateral relationships, both in Europe and in Asia. And now they seem to be really focusing on Asia to yeah. the to the detriment of Europe, I would argue. But um, <laughs> but I, I think you're right. Um, he's probably his administration is probably going to realize that um, that that makes sense to to repair a direct one on one relationship with the UK uh, while still maintaining you know, good relations and trade with, with the EU, but that it's going to be a separate qualitative yeah. separate thing. Well, the, and, and it becomes part of a global set of relationships because what you've got in, in Europe is an EU that wants closer relationships with Russia and that for oil. Yes. Um, uh, and uh, no doubt for other reasons, but oil is a big one. Uh, and yeah, that also right. What, yeah. That has signed um, the uh, uh, agreement with China. What is the China Agreement on Investment (CAI), yeah. uh, which America didn't particularly want them to do. Um, Britain not in that. Uh, Britain isn't in that. Uh, um, <laughs> I don't know whether they would want to be if they were in, in in the EU, but by accident, maybe they're not in that. So they provide uh, more of an Americanist perspective still in physically in Europe, if not in the EU. Um, and, and so that perhaps makes them more attractive as a partner going forward uh, in forming uh, global relationships. Right. Um, also, you've seen in the last couple of days a pivot in the UK because the foreign policy review, which was set up 12 months ago by, uh, uh, by Johnson, um, reported two days ago, I think, or maybe three days ago, um, and is showing a clear pivot uh, to, uh, uh, to disinter an old word term, uh, a clear pivot towards Indo-Pacific countries. Apparently, these, these are going to be Britain's focus in the future. Well, um, it certainly looks like it's Biden's focus right now. Yes. And it'd be interesting to see if they cooperate on those like security issues in Asia would, it would be yes, and, 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 and an advantage there that Britain's got is it 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 is apparently going to apply. I don't know how the body play um, to um, join the, that Indo-Pacific um, trade treaty partnership, which Biden can't because Congress won't let him. Yeah. Uh, so the weird thing is that you might end up with a situation. Where Britain is the conduit yeah. in 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 Indo-Pacific countries rather than in European countries. Or both. Fascinating. Hey, I, I want to want to run out of time before we hit our last yeah. topic, which is um, the future of American elections. Yeah. Um, as you know, the 2020 cycle saw a huge jump in voter participation, which nobody really saw. Um, we had uh, about two thirds of eligible voters cast ballots in the presidential election, which is the highest percentage since the Kennedy-Nixon election in 1960. Um, yeah. And this was largely due, I mean, it was mostly pandemic driven, frankly, it was mostly due to, you know, new voting tools, early voting tools, um, like obviously the mail-in process, which was hugely increased, as mm -hmm. well as absentee voting as well. Uh, so I have a couple of questions about that. Given 
you know, how you viewed American politics over the years. Do you think those voting tools are here to stay? And, and if so, what impact will it have on the two parties? Because, you know, the, the easy thought is, well, it's going to benefit Democrats. But considering that um, Trump amazingly did much better among Hispanic Americans of all types and even Black Americans to a smaller degree. Um, and, you know, there's talk that Republicans are already coming out with this more polished version of Trumpism, kind of a melding of populism and conservatism to try to continue that appeal to minorities and shift the image of the Republican Party to more of a, I know it sounds ridiculous, but a working class oriented party. Yeah. Um, but how do you think all this will play out? Um, because as you know, Democrats below the White House didn't do that well down ballot. Um, you know, the mm. margin in the House was significantly reduced and they came mm. within a hair's breadth of, you know, losing those two seats in, in Georgia. Um, so, yeah. so what do you think? How do you think it's going to play out in 2020 and 2024? That's, that's very difficult. You know, in, 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 um, uh, in two years time, uh, or less than two years time now, the election, yeah. The campaigns have started uh, effectively. Uh, the, um, uh, of, of course, uh, if historic precedent is anything to go by, uh, then the Republicans should have a good year, and the Democrats a poor year. Um, it really don't, th th there are always caveats on that because there are right. always policies that make a difference, uh, things happen. Um, uh, uh, some of those communities that as you say, shifted. Um, uh, I, I think the Democrats will be out there working very hard to persuade them that the policies that they're getting from this administration are more advantageous than the ones that they got from uh, the last administration. Um, uh, but, but yes, the, the, the wind is in the Republicans' favor, uh, particularly if the Republicans pass all 253 voter suppression laws. Uh, <laughs> That they have proposed so far, um, uh, and um, uh, uh, and 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 continuing in to use those kinds of tools as well, um, and they have done, as you say, they have done successfully uh, at down ballot, which gives them an advantage when the census results come out in right. terms of uh, rejoined um, constituencies. Yeah, and yeah. And, there, and there seems to be um, no punishment for this. This is uh, yeah. uh, this is. Uh, an, an accepted uh, part of uh, the spoils of, of, of election. Um, so the Republicans look as though they should do well. But who knows? These are change times. It's very, it, 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 it's, it's very volatile, I think, particularly in policy issues. It may be that policy rather than power can start influencing elections uh, again. And then the next presidential election, that's a really tough one. Is Joe Biden going to run again? Right. Um, if if he doesn't run again, he's got to make that clear very early on. Because uh, if he doesn't, then Kamala Harris can't get into the race. That's right. Um, uh, and um, uh, she and her supporters would want her to do that, whether uh, however much the, the party did or didn't. So, have, you, have you heard the news about the Meghan Markle bubble that she's meeting with Democratic consultants? Oh no, really? Yes. Oh. <laughs> yeah. That'd be, that'd be kind of bizarre. <laughs> but you know, yeah. to your point about the volatility and the kind of mix-up going on in, in, in the country part in kind of partisan sense, is you have 
the bizarre situation of uh, Marco Rubio the other day coming out in favor of the union organizers at an Amazon facility in Alabama. Right. Marco Rubio. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, well, you know, that, 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 um, that connection, you know, between uh, basically elite parties who uh, are dedicated to reducing taxes for billionaires and millionaires and the working class. It, it's worked before um, uh, in victories, you know, as far back as Disraeli. Disraeli was very good at picking up the working class votes. He wasn't a bad guy, but, but he was a Tory. Um, uh, so, um, you know, if, get, if, you, if you can get that message, and certainly Trump got that message out by making people who felt as though they were being disregarded. Right. And possibly justifiably felt that way. Right, right. Uh, by making them feel that he was on their side. Well, the sad thing was that he, well, in my opinion anyway, he wasn't. His policies didn't suggest, really, that he was on their side. Uh, even if his rhetoric did, his rhetoric was extremely successful and uh, really exposes a, a, a wound in, in the American polity. Yeah, yeah. Right. and you're right, Republicans, Republican presidents have done it before. Of course, Reagan had a, a pretty wide appeal among yeah. working class voters. And I mean, I, he actually, believe it or not, he carried Massachusetts. I've forgotten that. <laughs> So, yeah, it's been done before, but it, it's, it'll be interesting to see how far this, I don't want to call it a realignment because I don't think it really is, but how this changing of image a little bit. And, and actually, it's interesting, there are tensions in both parties, of course. There's the, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party yeah. kind of battling against the, the moderate liberal, what I would still call the liberal, you know, faction of the Democratic Party, the more moderate liberal yeah. faction. And in the Republican Party, you have this clash now between... Yeah populists and traditional conservatives. And it's such an upheaval, it's hard to know where the parties are gonna end up in the public mind. Well, it is, and, and this then has an effect on transatlantic relations, because then you've got the foreign office thinking, well, sigh of relief, we haven't got the volatile Trump anymore, we've got this nice guy, Joe Biden, who even if, even if he likes the Irish more than us, nonetheless, <laughs> uh, you know, um, right. uh, we'll get on with him. You know, he's good chap, good chap, we've known him for a long time. Yeah. Uh, but which one's the outlier? Is Trump the outlier or is Biden now the outlier? Right. What's in four years' time, if we're back to a, uh, a, a, Trump, a Trumpian, shall we say, uh, presidency, uh, then all this stuff about changing foreign uh, relationships becomes uh, uh, much, more, much more difficult for both countries. Yeah, and I think, I think you're right. It will be different, I think, in the next election, because I think you're right, it will be poly more policy driven mm. in terms of, uh, you know, is our Biden's policy successful? Is he seen as, you know, finally getting rid of the pandemic is in, in a rational way? Are his economic mm. policies really panning out for everyone or are they disproportionately hurting certain segments? I think, yeah, a lot of that is going to and of course, Biden is off on a, a, a little tour now across the country mm -hmm. trying to sell this uh, stimulus bill that was just passed uh, to try to make the point that it's, as you were saying, that it's going to help those communities that um, are kind of vulnerable at this point for the Democratic Party, I think. A good infrastructure bill would uh, um, be, uh, I think, a benefit 
if policy is going to be uh, important and if again delivering to those communities is um, is important uh, if if they uh, feel they've been neglected and if they have been neglected uh, um, and indeed you know if you look at the economic vibrancy of the counties that went either way um, then it's quite clear that the uh, uh, the more struggling economic counties went Trump way most mostly. Yeah, and, and infrastructure should be a bipartisan issue. I mean, roads yeah. are just as bad in red districts as they are in yeah. blue districts. Um, but, you know, you're talking probably about another couple of trillion dollars. And who was yeah. it, Everett Dirksen, who said, you know, a trillion here, he said a billion, but, you know, a trillion here, a trillion there, pretty soon you're talking about some real money. <laughs> I don't know if the appetite for more and more, I mean, I think eventually the public is going to start to think, well, wait a minute, we don't have this money and we're, you know, future well, generations are going to get hamstrung with all of this debt. It's all right as long as uh, international interest rates remain low. Yeah. Cheap money. True. Um, but yeah, if, if there was uh, if there was a sudden uh, boost to inflation for some reason, um, then uh, those bills uh, get expensive. Except that, of course, you're, you're selling them on, on long-term treasury bills, aren't you? So the interest rate on them is fixed. Right. It's not, it's not like your personal mortgage, which may go up and down every few years. Hey, Phil, you're, you're particularly interested, I know, in Massachusetts politics because yeah. you spent so much time here. Um, and we earlier before the podcast, we're talking a little bit about the COVID response here in Massachusetts being not exactly taken very well by the public. Um, and Charlie Baker, our governor, Republican governor, is taking a huge hit on his favorability because it's the perception is that he didn't handle the rollout of the vaccine very well. Um, and I'm curious, you know, Maura Healy, the current attorney general on the Democratic side, is, is a very popular figure and is more than likely, I would guess, going to be the Democratic nominee. So I'm curious to hear what your thoughts are about a, a Baker-Healy race potentially down the road, if, if Baker decides to run again. Well, as we as we know, incumbency has its advantages anyway. So one is always going to be looking at the good stuff you've done as well as the bad. Uh, but um, yes, it has disadvantages in that uh, it comes with a record that people can hit you for. Yeah. Um, uh, um, Massachusetts has always had this interest. Well, for the many years that I've been looking at, it, has had this uh, uh, interesting. Um, uh, heritage, I suppose, of being fundamentally demo a democratic place, which every now and then um, elects a rather interesting Republican. Yeah, um, more than and, every now uh, and then, actually, quite a bit. <laughs> quite a bit. Ed Brooke, um, uh, uh, Bill Weld, um, uh, uh, nice guys as well, um, uh, and, and others. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I don't know enough about what's going on in the field to have a sense of uh, uh, where, where that might be going. But, yeah, it's uh, funny. I, I just saw a poll um, yeah. that um, it, an amazing dynamic, which can only happen in Massachusetts, is um, Charlie Baker's favorability is twice as high among Democrats as it is among Republicans. <laughs> 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 right? Where else would that happen in this country? Maybe Maryland, possibly. Yeah. But other than yeah. that. Yeah, well, I, I I remember when uh, when Bill Weld ran, 
against John Kerry uh, and, uh, and uh, Bill well, one of Bill Wells' daughters uh, campaigned for Kerry because she didn't want to move to Washington. <laughs> yeah, Weld was an interesting character. And of course, he ran on the, on the Libertarian Party ticket uh, last year. Yeah, yeah, uh, well, yeah four him. years ago. And then last year, he, he did, he was one of the um, kind of symbolic opponents in, within the Republican Party. I, I right. saw him a couple of times in, in, yeah. in I, New Hampshire. I, uh, I, I liked I, mean, him, I liked him from the first day that he dove into the Charles River to prove that it wasn't polluted. Do you remember that? Oh, I don't miss that. That's a great one. That's yeah. great. Well, uh, unfortunately, uh, Zoom is uh, not allowing us to go much further, but this was really fantastic. This was a great, great discussion. I, I miss talking to you. It's been over a year, and it's uh, it, yeah. always a pleasure to uh, exchange ideas with you and, and just friendly banter, even more importantly. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> But thanks uh, very much for inviting me, Ernie. It was great. Thanks, thanks for participating, Phil. I appreciate it, and uh, I hope uh, you've all enjoyed. You, all of you listeners out there, have enjoyed our discussion, and we hope you'll join us for our next episode of the polling station. Again, this is Ernie Pykopoulos of Polity Research. So long. <laughs>